0: Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer of Built to Sell Radio, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we dive inside the mind of an acquirer as John chats with the CEO of Alpine Software Group, Steve Reardon. But before we get there, as you're about to hear, Steve utilizes the rule of 40 to evaluate a company's overall operational efficiency and long-term potential. Now, if you're interested to learn more about the rule of 40, I've added some great resources over in our show notes page which can be found at builttosell.com. Now, one of the main reasons we wanted to invite Steve on the show today is for one, he is also an entrepreneur who has founded and sold a company himself. He's an operator who has served as the CEO of multiple different businesses. And you'll also remember Gavin Hammer's episode, which I'll share in the show notes page, but he was the acquirer for his company, Sendable. Now, as you're listening to today's episode, there's a few things that you'll want to look out for. The first being how to think like an investor rather than an operator when thinking of selling your business. How to understand the key traits that Reardon prioritizes when considering a company to acquire. How to apply Reardon's formula to estimate the growth potential of your business how to get 100% cash upfront for your company, a key indicator to identify an exceptional leader, how to avoid Reardon's top deal killers when selling your business, and how to uncover potential buyers who might be plotting to snag your company for a discount. Here to share with you his insight is Steve Reardon. Enjoy.
1: Steve Verden, Welcome to BitSailed Radio.
2: Thanks, John. It's great to be with you today.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you here. And as the CEO of ASG, I want to talk to you about the way you think about running a software company, especially one with so many different divisions and products. But I want to go back earlier uh, to Durban, South Africa. Tell me the story about your startup journey. How did you get into business for yourself?
2: Yeah, so I grew up on the east coast of South Africa uh, in Durban. Um, I then w- went down to uh, university to college in Cape Town, and as I was getting my start, you know, I did an undergrad in business, and I always dreamed of being an entrepreneur, running my own thing, running my own show. And I worked in uh, fashion retail for a little while post uh, post grad, and uh, I loved that. You know, I was a brand manager, I was a financial manager, and I got a little bit of a taste of that entrepreneurial spirit. Best thing that happened there was I met my wife Lisa. So that. That was, a, uh, that was a great piece of uh, of that. She's a fashion designer. Um, and then I, uh, you know, I wanted to go out on my own. It was the beginning of sort of digital photo printing. Uh, it's probably dating me a little bit, but there were all these sort of self-service units that were going out. And uh, we got a license. I got out, I started the business with a friend. We got a license to distribute these businesses. So it was real hard goods in those days, but, you know, a little bit of technology. Started in a, a garage that I was renting with, uh, you know, very little money, and dragged my machines from pharmacy to pharmacy and supermarket to supermarket and uh, tried to try to sell them. But it was still in the days of having a map book and uh, scheduling my route um, and ran that business for about five years it was you know it was a little business, but it was great, and it taught me so much about being an operator, how hard it is uh, you know lying awake. I tell a lot of people it's you know. Entrepreneurialism is more about lying awake at night, you know, worrying about making payroll than it is about, <laughs> you know, the, the big exit in the end. But we did manage to exit that business to a competitor in 2009. And, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a great experience. And I went on to sort of, uh, you know, manage and run a bunch of other businesses. But yeah, it was a great experience. Um, it was real, it was real rough stuff, hand to hand combat on sales. I did everything, ran the books and negotiated with suppliers, chased down payments. Um, but as we scaled, obviously some of that that went away. But yeah, just an incredibly great formative life experience.
1: And so I'm understanding again. I, I think in in Canada we we have uh, like Walmart. You can take a yeah. USB card that right. sits in your camera, and you put it into like a machine and then you say, print everything, and then it gives you pictures. That, that's the kind of machine I'm talking about?
2: Yeah, that was the machine. The unique dynamic we had in South Africa was it was right at the beginning of Bluetooth cell phones. And we I actually found this niche in rural parts of South Africa where there were folks who didn't have computers and USBs and couldn't go to a local Walmart. And they were going to sort of convenience stores and pharmacies, and they had no way to print the photos that were on their phone. So we imported these machines that were Bluetooth enabled and they were able to Bluetooth to the machines and print out their photos and have have physical copies. And that was actually what gave us our competitive edge. So I spent a lot of my time sort of driving into the more rural uh, parts of, of SA and, and doing that. Interesting. Great life experience. I'd be
1: curious to know in that business, you're really distributing someone else's hardware and right. effects. Right. So we've done some interviews with distributors and it's tough to get a decent value for those companies because they're you know there is no ip per se it's just a you know it's a somewhat commoditized product how did the exit go for you did you like how big were you when you sold can you share anything about multiples or any any detail
2: yeah um i mean it's going back a ways now and, and i guess the rand dollar conversion but um you know, we didn't, you know, I made a I made an amount of money at the time that felt like a lot of money, you know, probably in the order of a few hundred thousand dollars at exit. Um we were valued on gross profit at the time because I sold to a competitor. My theory was hey, you could absorb all of my gross profit um and you didn't have to carry any of my operating expenses, which was true. Um and then the one other thing to say is that the one beauty of this particular distribution was there was a paper and ink component to the machine. So it was a little bit like the old sort of Minolta and Canon, sort of the, the mm-hmm. multi, uh, you know, multi-use printers. Um, so the competitor actually valued my client base. Uh, so I had about 350 locations around the country and they could sort of you know, see the usage of the printers and, uh, and the paper and they valued it on that basis. And what multiple of gross profit do you remember roughly what it would have been? You know, it was probably like four or five times at the time. Gross profit. Yeah, yeah. Got it.
1: Got it. Okay. So you have this exit. Um, where does it go from there? Because just maybe fill listeners in. And, I, and the reason I want to do this for our listeners is just to give them a sense of your journey to ASG. Because sometimes when we talk to people from the acquirer side, um, you know, they've They've started a private equity group or they've started, uh, you know, a a family office and they've started to acquire companies. But your journey is a little bit different. So maybe walk us through how you go from an exit to ASG.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I always considered that there was the spectrum between investors and operators. And for the majority of my life, I've been sort of the operator's operator. Post exiting my business, I went to a sports leisure business in golf. I was big into golf at the time. Um, and I ran their membership division there as GM. You know, I was just interested in running businesses. You know, I, I just felt like being an operator. I loved building teams. I loved optimi- optimizing businesses. Um, I ran a business called Playmore Golf, which was a membership subscription service in South Africa. It aggregated unused tee times. The golf business then went out. I led a team that uh, investigated buying a cycling chain in South Africa. So we bought South Africa's largest cycling chain, bought these big box cycling stores. And so I just, you know, I fell in love with running businesses. That was the truth. My, my, the backstory to that is I kept following my passion into these businesses and ultimately fell out of love with golf and cycling and all these things, but fell in love with running businesses. Um, so, you know, (laughs) anyway, that's how that went. And then, um, in 2016, uh, my, my family and I took the opportunity to come to the States. Um, we were pretty deliberate about it. I wanted to see, uh, what the business environment was like here. I been CEO, I'd been a CEO multiple times, um, so I got an opportunity to study and do a, a business degree at Stanford, um, and that's when I met the Alpine Investors crew. You know, they obviously recruit out of these business schools, and then uh, you know they were looking for operators. I was from a weird geo, and you know, no one knew where Johannesburg was, I guess. But uh, <laughs> you know, they were uh, they were excited uh, about potentially having me run some of their businesses, and it was right in the formative beginning of ASG. You know, the The folks had this thesis about buying bootstrap vertical SaaS businesses, you know, businesses that were unaddressable to traditional private equity, putting them in a software company and and growing them that way. Um, And I ran a bunch of businesses with them. We moved up to Seattle with the family, ran a a bunch of our legal tech holdings up there, Bill for time. That became Practice Panther and ultimately Paradigm. And then a bunch of our MarTech businesses, you know, I think we did. Uh, You know, while I was running that business, we did about eight acquisitions over the three years I was there, including six and 45 days. So I was an operator, but while I was in that operator seat, because it was private equity backed, we just did a lot of M and A. And what I realized was that the operator mindset can be really, really valuable on the investing side. You know, investors are great. Pure play investors are great. Um, but you bring something to it by having an operator mindset. You understand. The levers of the business. You understand what is actually going to make a revenue model a reality. And I really loved that part of it. Um, so I still very much think of myself as an operator today, um, but obviously I play a little bit more in the investing realm uh, and perhaps straddle a little bit of that more than I did historically. But yeah, I mean, I've been an operator historically, and I think I think one of the things that makes ASG successful is that we are a group of operators. We do. Go into every acquisition and every business we look at with an operator mindset of like how do we grow this, how do we add to this, how are we additive, and how do we bring more to it, and also how do we uh, you know how do we treat founders uh, in a way that really honors their legacy and and gets them great outcomes for their business and the future?
1: I've got so many follow on questions <laughs> there, but I'll start here. operator versus investor i I've heard you say as an operator, you can go beyond just the spreadsheet and really think about how those decisions would uh, make the business move forward faster. What do investors do better
2: than operators? I think, the, um, I think folks that have grown up in an investing tradition bring a level of detail orientation and research uh, to bear on a business um, that is sometimes you know, qu- quite fascinating to behold. So they think in uh, they think in terms of addressable markets. They think in terms of very long term. You know, what is this business going to be like for the next acquirer in 5, 7, 10, 15 years? What is this industry going to look like in 5, 7, 10 years? What are the unit economics of your acquisition model going to look like? And really drill into that. Um, and the best of them uh, get really dialed in on a business in an incredibly short period of time. So I think their ability to massively focus and assimilate information and draw, extrapolate kind of uh, larger scale trends out of, you know, relatively few data points um, makes great investors primarily. How did you become, how did
1: you, obviously your credibility as an operator uh, came from the street? You you grew up operating businesses. How did you become better at the investing side of things?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I think, I think I've developed and improved some of my weaknesses. So I think I've, I've, you know, gotten better at building revenue models and gotten better at sort of thinking like an investor. But in a lot of ways, what I've done is just, you know, like, like any good, uh, um, you know, any good well-rounded person, I've, I've lent into my strengths more. I've realized like, Hey, we've got all these incredibly smart analysts and, and principals and partners that have done millions and millions of deals. But what I can bring is like, Hey, I've run like 20 companies. I can sit across from a management team. I can tell you whether their VP of sales knows what they're talking about. I can walk the floor of an office and get a, a vibe and a feel for it. I can have a, a, a conversation or a dinner with a founder and, and connect operator to operator. So, more than that, what I try to do is I try to be useful uh, in the areas where I feel like investors may need some more support. Uh, win the deal, negotiating tactics sometimes at the end of the day, but. Yeah, I mean, more I just try and bring my operator mindset to deals, I think.
1: Out of interest, what would
2: you ask a VP sales to evaluate whether they knew what they were talking about or not? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. There's obviously, I mean, we do these full day management presentations. Um, Mostly what I'm looking for is like, do you know how to build and scale a professional sales organization that's matched to your customer set? So are you building the right kind of sales motion? Do you understand the go-to-market in a way that's that's really, really real? And then the other thing is, I always look for, especially as you move up the sales organization, I look for sales scientists. Like I, I love the guy who's in the laboratory turning the dials. I know what regions are doing what. I know how to structure a commission scheme. I know what my LDV to CAC is. I know where I can... Uh, you know, really put more folks out in the field. So I always look for folks that have data-driven answers and really, really understand the underlying drivers of the business.
1: Such a great uh, insight. And thank you for sharing that. Let's go back to SG for a moment. So you're the CEO. Uh, help me understand the, the types of companies you
2: acquire. Just
1: give me a sense of the size of businesses, the industries, et cetera.
2: Sure. Yeah, so we got on start going sort of very, you know, going down the valuation scale, like i say well, our big thesis was how do we address bootstrap saAS businesses um, and we still stay true to that as we've gotten bigger as we've gotten more equity allocation from uh, from our private equity sponsor, we've gone up market a little bit, but traditionally our um our platform investments are anywhere from call it five to about thirty five million dollars of ARr um, add-ons can be a little smaller, so once we've got you know a core investment in an industry. Uh, We can do sort of two to 10, but, you know, anything up to that. Um, And then ideally what we try and buy is, you know, we're a little bit more like I think compared to uh, some of the other um, folks who do this, we very much focus on growth. We want, you know, we want high growth and we want balanced growth businesses. So our North Star has always been rule of 40. It's a rule of 40 uh, just to say it is revenue growth added to EBITDA margin. So if you've got a 20% grower and a 20% EBITDA margin, that's a rule of 40 business. And anything above that are businesses we get excited about. As what do you pay for those businesses? What's that? like If you
1: had a SaaS company with 10 million in ARR that had rule of 40, what sort of multiple range would you expect to pay for a company like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, there, there's always other contributing factors that go into that TAM, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, those businesses are trading in the, call it, four to eight times ARR range. I guess they and, and, are and, being annual revenue. Revenue. And revenue.
1: Yeah. so our listeners span span the gamut. We've got some SaaS folks and sure. e-commerce folks, but we've also got traditional industry. So I'll try to play the role of decoding some of our language yeah, yeah, because yeah. uh to, to to honor them. Uh Martech, of course, being marketing technology vertical right. that you referenced earlier. Right. So rule of authority being a, a big sort of software company benchmark that folks are looking right. for. Uh, so that would be any combination of growth and EBITDA adding up to 40.
2: Yeah. I, um, market- yeah, I could say one thing about that. I mean, the one thing that's been interesting about the rule of 40 in the SaaS world is the market has shifted pretty substantially over the last few years. We have always been balanced growth investors, which is what I like. I like businesses that produce profit uh, and grow at the same time. So our businesses have been in the... 20 to 30% r- grower in the 20 to 30% EBITDA range, historically. We were pretty uncool for the last six <laughs> or seven years, because what folks wanted in the rule of 40 is they wanted 50% growth and minus 10% EBITDA margin. Obviously, uh, as the corrections happen in the public markets, debt's gotten more expensive, funding rounds have changed. Uh, there's been sort of more of a shift back towards that. I will say, I mean, if you look at most of the metrics, there's still more of a premium. Uh, for growth, so probably you know, call it like if you were going to be twenty five, fifteen, is you know, is, is probably right in the sweet spot, or twenty twenty. Um, but the market has changed, just to say it, you know, for some of your funds. Ha-
1: and how has that impacted your ability to get deals done? Because as the market has changed, you know, whether it's Vista or XLKKR or any of the big private equity groups that are going after the same acquisitions. They're all doing the same thing, right? They're like, oh, we can't get debts for the same price. So we need profit. We need EBITDA. So all of a sudden, you're not looking so uh, naive. You're looking like you were prescient. Right. And at the same time, now you're competing on deals with all sorts of folks who have just kind of got religion when it comes to EBITDA. So how has that impacted? Like I'm talking about the last six months,
2: right? your ability to get deals done. Well... I mean, there are a few things to say about that. So I'll try and keep it brief. I mean, the one thing is the market is just a little goofy and strange at the moment. I don't want to get too technical. That's a technical term, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, Most we, are we, yeah. but, uh, but supplies constraint, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of like the real estate markets you see in some of these places. Interest rates are high. Therefore, founders and banks and institutional capital. Are just assuming that folks are not going to pay high prices, so they're withholding processes. So, you know, there's various stats out there, but there's no doubt that software private equity deals are down, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50% of quarter of quarter. So um, deals are just down generally. So that's like point number one. We could talk a little bit about that for your audience, because I actually think that creates an opportunity on the sell side because we're actually- Please do. Yeah. Um, and And then just to your previous thing on the Excel KKR thing, like um yes folks have gotten religion about vertical SaaS business which is great i mean it's a great product category and it's awesome for your founders and, and all of that stuff um and i think what it what it pushes us to do which is what we've always wanted to do is get better at operationally improving the business so that we can underwrite more growth so that we can buy better and then also you know which has been a big focus of us um you know focus on your strengths you know we focused on variable uh, outcomes for founders, being flexible with founders, focusing on transitions, bringing in executive talent to either augment founders. Um, and we've built a number of muscles that some of the new entrants to the game, I think, don't necessarily have. There's obviously great firms out there. We we do things a certain way. Um, and I think that muscle that we've built over the last six or seven years will still stand us in good stead. But there's no doubt, you know, vertical SaaS businesses are high-quality assets. And if you've got a rule of 41, there, there are going to be buyers out there for it. You mentioned that you know, it presents an
1: opportunity for founders. Maybe walk me through what you see as the opportunity.
2: Yeah, well, there's still a significant capital overhang. You know, Over the last few years, private equity firms, uh, individual sponsors, family offices have raised a bunch of money, uh, and it's still out there. And so, like I say, it's like the real estate market. In some of these high-priced real estate markets, despite all the talk, despite everything that's gone on, you still see house prices being stubbornly high, right? Now in the SaaS world, it's no different. When if you taking if you're taking out a pristine asset, so call it a rule of forty growing, a durable growth business um, that is spinning out cash, you're going to have a lot of suitors. And we are seeing in some of those uh, processes prices that are similar to the peak in 2019, 2020, 2021. Um, so if you have a great business. <clears throat> I think it presents a great opportunity because there just isn't that much, uh, you know, you will get all the attention that's out there. Um, You will also get a good bank to rep you because there's fewer mandates uh, that folks are taking at the moment. And you will get a lot of interest in your business.
1: Um, Maybe the reason I'm asking this question before I ask it is I, I just want to understand who you answer to at ASG. I don't mean you specifically, Steve. I mean like the, I guess you, yeah. You as CEO, you yeah. really must answer to somebody. Right. Um, so, just walk me through the legal structure of ASG, and in particular, I'm I'm trying to understand who who wags the dog. Like, who is <laughs> like? Do we have a uh, an investor who founded ASG who wants a return on their yeah. capital? Yeah. Do you do you go out to big pension funds and raise money? You mentioned. This private equity sponsor, maybe help me understand that.
2: I know there's sure. some sensitivities about what you can and can't no, no, no. say. So just walk through what what it what it looks like. Absolutely. Yeah. So we are the Alpine Software Group. We are a, a software company. We're also a portfolio company platform of Alpine investors. Alpine investors is a private equity fund based out of San Francisco. They were the founders of us in 2016, uh, with this thesis of like buying vertical SaaS businesses. Um and we have remained their dominant strategy for the deployment of capital into that particular market. So my board, my owners are the general partners uh, of Alpine Investors. Um, and that's nice for from two parts for me. On the one side, we get a allocation of capital from the main fund every time they raise. So there are now a number of ASGs. Um, uh, you know, so over the years, we have a few different vintages. Um and it creates a great opportunity for us because they handle the fundraising, they handle the legal compliance, they manage the LPs, um, and we can focus on building and buying and, and growing great SaaS companies. So at the end of the day, that's, that's the legal structure. It's pretty simple. We are, uh, we are in partnership with them. They do a ton on the m a side. They handle a lot of the transactions. We're obviously answerable on the buy side to an investment committee. Which consists of the partners at Alpine, um, and then we predominantly focus on sort of the build uh, of the software businesses uh, along the way. So that's how the partnerships worked. It's it's been great from the beginning. I think they they do what they're great at. We do what we're great at, um, and and that's been okay. Across it.
1: And so let me see if I understand this. And this is for my own edification, but also so my audience understands. So so Alpine Investors um, is an investment. Uh, group uh, or is it or a, uh, private firm. a private equity a private equity firm where there is um, uh, both general partners and limited partners limited partners being that their liability is limited to their investment right and they the GPs would raise money from most likely institutions like pension funds and correct those types of individuals endowments big university endowments and so forth so those uh people who run those pension funds are saying I need to get you know, eight, nine, 10% for my money. I could put it in the public stock market, but I should have an allocation towards private equity. A little bit of the money should be. And then they decide whether to give it to Alpine investors or one of the other private equity groups that are out there offering to get them a return. Correct. Correct. Got it. Okay. And then Alpine investors in turn says, okay, great. We've got Steve and his team. They're great at building and growing businesses. So we're going to take some of our money and give it to Steve to go buy businesses. Right. Uh, and then do they have other investments that Alpine investors make, or is it all to you?
2: Yeah. So the firm is split 50-50 software and services. And then under both of those banners, there are a number of different strategies. So like on the services cool. side, there's roofing and HVAC, and, you know, commercial HVAC and all that stuff. On the software side, we do larger platform investments. We also have a data business that does a similar version to ASG called Predictus. Um, and they buy predominantly data businesses. Um, so yeah, so the, the the money is sort of allocated out to a number of different investment strategies.
1: Okay, and how are you uh, measured effectively by Alpine investors?
2: Like, what is your metric? Right. Well, what we try to do is we try to return above the hurdle rate of the fund. Uh, so so the fund uses a a term called MOIC, multiple on invested capital. That's just you know. A very basic way of saying how how many times we have increased the amount of capital we were allocated, um, and Alpine has a hurdle rate for that, and we are measured on that um, and so those vary across the private equity world, and at the end of the day, what we try to do is when we bring in the businesses, we build them, we add add to them, we organically grow them, and we exit them at some point in the future, uh, you know we have a longer term hold horizon, sometimes we hold forever or longer um but when we exit ultimately those businesses are are marked and we're evaluated on on how well that's done so okay that makes
1: sense so uh you would get an allocation of capital let's say you get a hundred dollars and and they say steve we want you to make this worth at least $200. $200. Correct. And, and we'll consider it successful if we, if you achieve that, but that, I'm just obviously making it very right. simple for, for folks. And, and again, you may, this may be territory you can't share, and I totally appreciate it if you can't, but what is, what is the hurdle rate? If you can't share that specifically, maybe you could just me general benchmarks for kind of private equity. What, what would the range be
2: on the, that hurdle rate? Yeah. I mean, we've always tried to peg ourselves into a pretty high percentile. Um, so, you know, uh MOICs have, MOICs are in the range of, you know, what you have described two times, three times, four times. Um, the actual mark is is something I think that they they keep two yeah, to Right. So two, three times over what time frame?
1: You know, traditional private equities call it seven to ten years. Okay. So that doesn't sound that hard to meet, like tripling the size of a business in ten years.
2: Yeah. As I say, we, we, we tend to set a pretty high bar. So, so I'll okay. a little higher, uh, especially in the vertical SaaS world, you know, we, that's kind of like, when you think about the hurdle rate, that's kind of your base level return that you're trying to promise your limited partners. We have internal uh, targets that are substantially higher than that. Uh, okay. And we obviously benchmark ourselves on, on being a, a top 5% or a top 1% firm. So I think there's a little more juice there, but yeah, you are, I mean, I I think the, I think the job is doable, which is why we do it. But we, uh, but there is significant improvement we have to make in the businesses to get to that.
1: Yeah, I would think so. And how much is, how do you think about debt? Uh, so a lot of, again, this this may be how Alpine Investor structure the capital they give you. Is that debt? Is that capital that you can then? Um, you borrow against or or is Alpine investors levering up their fund and then and then giving you the money, then you 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 have that pot effectively. You right. can't then
2: double lever it if you if you do you know what I'm asking? Yeah we, we run leverage at the ASG level. Um okay. so we get an allocation of equity, pure equity, and then we do our best to bring in as much, you know, we we do our best to lever up the businesses. We've always been relatively conservative with that. Uh you know, so we want to we want to make sure we've got enough money to grow the businesses and continue to add and grow. Um, But we have used it historically um, and we continue to do so in a a pretty traditional private equity way.
1: Okay, cool. That's, that's super helpful. So walk me through what a typical deal structure would look like. So let's say, you know, we look at a company, it's a fast growing rule of 40 SaaS company. Uh, So we've, we've, We figured out that we're willing to pay $100 for this company. Again, I'm using a very simplistic example just to try to structure it for folks. So so $100, what proportion of that, like break it out, what proportion would be equity versus debt versus a seller note? versus a, like, like a role of equity,
2: like right. by the seller, like it's just structured. And again, all deals are different, but just yeah. give me a ballpark container. Yeah, so ballpark container is, you know, so we, we're, we traditionally do 100% deals um, because we're focused on founder transitions and we can, we can talk about that. Because Yeah, I'd love to talk like, about that, yeah. So you're buying 100% of the company. We're buying 100% of the company. We obviously have founders who in certain instances want to stay and want to um, keep going. And so we have instruments, uh profits, interest, and uh, long-term in- incentive comp, et cetera, that we uh we, you know we create so that founders can get a role and keep going. But traditionally, we would do 100 percent cash deals, just to say it. The amount of debt you can put on a deal is really about the debt carrying capacity of the business itself and less about a you know notional amount. So historically in SaaS, um Leverage has been done on an EBITDA basis, so depending on the quality of the asset, the quality of the business, the quality of the fund, you've been able to get three turns, four turns, five turns, six turns of EBITDA on the business. And as long as you can support that from a cash flow perspective, that's great. So that might mean you can do 30% of the deal, 40% of the deal uh, on a debt basis. there is so let's all- just, I just, want to, I just want to interrupt you, Steve, and just make yeah. sure our follow- listeners are following along. So, so 30, 30, be- $30 or $40 of the $100 purchase price being in debt and the remainder being in equity.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. So, I was, yeah, if, if this company is worth $100, let's imagine that maybe 10 of those dollars, like it, it's making $10 of EBITDA. Right. And, and what I think you're saying, Steve, is that you, know, you got a pretty good shot at, at, at potentially borrowing 30, right. 40, Maybe as much as 50 or even sixty dollars right. of debt right
2: is that right?: That's right I mean I okay. would say that that uh, you know with all the caveats that depends on the quality of the business, the durability of the revenue. Uh, but the beauty of recurring revenue businesses from a lender perspective is they are pretty predictable, they are very sticky, especially if they have high retention rates. you can look at that and be like, I think this EBITDA is going to be very durable, and if you're dealing with a reputable a buyer like us who has a significant track record, then in general, we've been able to get, you know, rates that have been pretty, pretty good.
1: Got it. So the $100 to buy the business, maybe somewhere between 30, 40 would be debt that you right. borrow. Right. Uh, what about the other 60?
2: That'll just be straight equity. So just that's equity. That's equity. That we've Got gotten it. in from our investors.
1: That's super helpful. And when you think about a return on capital, are you referring to the $60 of capital you put into a deal or the $100 you buy the business for?
2: Um, typically, private equity benchmarks are on equity multiples. So, the 60 the 60, yeah.
1: so it goes, stands to reason that the more debt you can put on the business, the, the better the
2: easier it is to hit the hurdle rate because you're putting less capital at risk is that would that be fair to say right so this is the foundation of like the traditional lbo model and the traditional private equity thing so yeah i mean the more the more you can lever up a business theoretically the more levered it is the the more multiple you can get on it over time as you obviously and your listeners will will realize like there is a balance to that in terms of how much risk you want to take on and i think you know one of the interesting things about like sort of the private equity world is there are so many different brands and flavors of what this is you know um there's there's you know the sort of barbarians at the gate you buy the business <laughs> you lever it up you sell non core assets you fire everyone you empty out the building and you run it for cash flow kind of thing and then we you know we very much are on the other end of the scale where like yes we use some of these tools but we what we want is we want to have a significant amount of EBITDA that we're putting back in the business we want to have businesses that are growing into themselves and we never, ever want debt or repayments ever to come into our calculation of us growing and building, enduring and awesome software businesses. So um, we do use it. But as I say, it's, it's, it's always a little bit more of a trade-off for us. Yeah, it's that balance,
1: finding the right amount of debt that allows right. you to maximize your return, but at the same time, not overburden the company or force you to make decisions that strip out more meat than
2: fat, like yeah. make make. It's been, it's, it's been funny for me as an operator john just to like take a take a step back because i ran yep. all these businesses unlevered for years right right so i was running these businesses and it's because it's super scary as a founder and as an operator you're like man I, you know you don't even think about it. you don't sit there one day when you got a profitable business and go man maybe i could lever up my ebitda like seven times right but if you think about the fundamentals of it if you can support it what could you go and do with those that cash in your own business so it's been an interesting experience for me to realize like, man, you can use this as a weapon. And like, it's gotten obviously much more expensive these days. But as you look back over the last five to 10 years, what would you have been able to do as an operator if you had taken some debt out of the business, gone and bought another business, expanded into a different geo, added another business line to it and, um, and used right? It can be a fantastic weapon for growth. Spoken like a good investor, <laughs> but let me play devil's advocate. <laughs> Harder when, when you're your personally entire, signing up for the debt, I suppose.
1: No, when your entire net worth right. is your company. Right, right. And the idea of levering it is scary. Trust right? Me. I as, you. as you know, as an operator, <laughs> uh, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is 100% cash at closing. So you're buying these businesses. I mean, I guess so many, I'm laughing because I've got like a, five hours worth of questions for you on this, but I'll try to keep it short. You're buying these businesses for hundred percent cash and that's unusual. Uh, you, typical private equity play would be, we're going to value the business. We'll give you 60% of it. Then we're going to ask you to roll 40% right. of it. Uh, you're not doing that. Tell me more about your thoughts here.
2: Yeah. So one of our philosophies is we like to bring in new operators into the business. And as a result of that, we tend to attract founders and and sellers who are in some sort of transition event in uh, in their lives. That's been helpful for us. It obviously narrows the funnel to some degree, but it's great because not so many people play there. So what we do is we've invested pretty seriously in a deep bench of talent. We recruit out of these business schools. We go out and we recruit operators. At any one time, I've probably got somewhere between four and six operators. Employed on my bench, sort of what you would think about as uh executives and residents or CEOs and residents, and so I've got this bench of folks ready to go in and run businesses. so what that means is I usually the types of deals that I see uh is a wide range of founders. obviously we have some founders who are great who are motivated that want to keep going, and then what we do is we bring in an executive as like a number two as like a hey, teach someone the ropes and a lot of that is really in service to the CEO or to the founder in saying that like hey i don't know what you're going to feel like after you get a check for 10 million bucks you know i don't know what you're going to feel like after you don't own this business anymore so i want to create um i want to create opportunities for you to maybe do something else then i have sort of the serial entrepreneurs who are like hey this business i got this business to where i wanted it to be 30 million bucks would be great if you give me that i got another idea i'll see you later Um, and then, you know, I have the guys who are like, I've been doing this for 30 years and I want to take my sailboat with my missus and sail to Tahiti and like everything in between, right. (laughs) The, the CTO who really loved the business when there was him and six engineers, like I've had a, I had a great opportunity when the first business I took over uh, a business called Belfort Time, Jeremy DeVinny, he was a great CEO and he was a great CTO, but he was like, we came into that business and he was like, look. I'm an engineer, this thing's gotten really big now. And if you could let me go back and run the engineering team and you can go and run this, that would be awesome. So we've tried to carve a niche out in these particular founder transition events. And, and what I like to do is just say like, hey, we can be so flexible for you, we'll create whatever life you wanna create. And I think that's the difference with traditional um, private equity where they're obviously, you know, a lot of them are buying into the founder, into the management team. Uh, we're one of the few buyers when you come to us and say, like, hey, I, I actually want to leave. We're like, OK, that's that's totally good. And we'll we'll figure out how that how that works for you. It's obviously going to be a tr- transition time or whatever. But but that's kind of our model.
1: What's the difference between a founder and a Stanford School of Business, MBA, entrepreneur in residence? Like, help me understand the difference between these those two individuals.
2: Well, obviously, sometimes nothing. Uh, sometimes the the founders are well rounded CEOs and, and are great. So, just generalize, you know, <laughs> just to say that. Um, I think founders tend to be um, creatures of their own experience, so they run a business in the way that they've always run the business, and a lot of times that's good, and a lot of times that gets the business where it is, and not always where it wants to be. Um, I think. Oftentimes, founders are great visionaries and and are great at the beginning of things. You know, if you take sort of the Peter Thiel analogy, founders are incredible at zero to one. You know, I actually realized one of the things I realized through my startup experience is I'm a better one to ten and ten to hundred guy than I actually am a zero to one guy, and I know that because we've you know we've had fifty two founders that are just so incredibly good at that. And then the difference with sort of the more professional manager of the business is they're good at sort of the next phase of the business. Hey, once you've got 30 people, I know how to get it to 300. And I can institute the playbooks that ASG has. I know how to scale this thing. I know how to bring in information. I know how to bring in like a CISO and make sure we never get hacked and have an information breach. I know how to professionalize the organization. I know how to build and scale a sales team. Um, and they're just like some more sort of general athletes in that in that way. And that but some awesome of those great. general athletes, athlete, Steve, look, let might
1: push back a little bit because yeah, yeah. here's what I get I get an email a week, maybe two, from some guy or gal who's just graduated from Wharton who wants his, what do they call them? A the search fund? Or yeah, they yeah, their yeah, own search French fund. And, and they're like, I want to buy Value Builder. And I'm like, okay, let's look at your LinkedIn profile. And I go back and they're like, a greeter at Home Depot, they went to Wharton and now they want to buy my business. And I'm like, you may have it all figured out in a textbook, but you have never done anything. Trust me. Steve, you've been both sides, which is why I'm so loving this conversation. You've been the operator, right? Right. And you've gone to the best business school, arguably, maybe Harvard, Wharton, Stanford, they're all in the same milieu, In Seattle. They're the best in the world. So you, you know you can speak from this from both sides of the coin. Right. So I know a lot of Stanford grads who couldn't sell their way out of a paper bag. Right. Or Wharton folks who would make a great spreadsheet but couldn't run a company to save their life. Right. What's the difference between the guy I'm talking about
2: and the one you hired? Well, I, first of all, not a lot. I mean, we have, a, we have a strong and clear screening process and we spend a lot of time on that. Um, and so I think we get a incredibly good crop of of MBAs, and and I and as I say, we do recruit non MBAs as well. The thing that we do differently is we spend an enormous amount of time on developing those executives over their period while they're running the business. So the reason that my job exists is I sit on seven boards. I look, you know, I spend a lot of time with our executives. And so if if the question is, which I would agree with. On day one, are they the best CEOs you've ever seen? Absolutely not. What they are is after year three, they're the best CEOs in the world. And so I don't, you know, I'm definitely not one of these boosters who say that like MBAs teach you how to run the business. I I think they teach you some great groundwork. But what what the combination of on-the-job training with the playbooks we've developed, with the personal development and coaching that we put into the businesses and the people, we believe that we accelerate their curve. So that after year one, year two, year three, there are some of the best executive managers in the world. So you're you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, someone straight out of college running one of our businesses with no oversight, with no help, with no development, with no coaching. You know, we've developed. You know, every one of our executive, every one of our executives gets an executive coach. We bring in a program called the People First Leadership Program. We have board huddles monthly. We give them training on how to run P and L. We bring in sales expertise. We bring in tech expertise. We hire their CTO for them. You know, we do so many of the setup things in the early days because we're running, you know, a, a pretty staffed hold code to do this, and that's why that model works. And actually, that's why it's been quite hard to replicate. We've had a few other firms and other businesses who've been like, "Yeah, we do an executive recruiting out of Wharton as well," and like it's easy. And I'm like, it's actually it's actually really hard yeah. um, because you because you've absolutely identified the gap between. I graduated Wharton and year three, where I'm the best CEO in vertical SaaS in North America. There's a lot that happens in those three years.
1: How do you cut the wheat from the shaft? So you're recruiting on Stanford's campus. You've got 50 grads you're looking at. How do you pick the one that's got the staying power? Like, What's the question that you like to ask, which is the most predictive of their success in year three? Um, two questions. Why do you want to be a CEO? And are you good with people? What are you looking for in their answers?
2: I, I am looking for something beyond. In the first one, I'm looking for something beyond, hey, it's just the top job. I'm looking for a mission. I'm looking for a service. I'm looking for something that revolves around, I can't do anything else. I'm called to this job. I'm great. At this thing, Um, and then I'm also looking for some version of, I just I just love building teams. I love people. I love building teams. I love getting the best out of them. I love building high performing teams. And then on the second one, I'm looking for people who really become students of the human experience, who have spent time and energy understanding empathy, what understanding what makes them tick from a motivation and desire perspective, and have found a way to really develop that empathy in others. Because one of the greatest predictors I've seen uh, of CEO success is generating followership. You know, I, I say to a lot of my CEOs, the CEO with the best team is the best CEO. And if you can only do one thing, go do that thing. Um, and so I think folks that are already good at those two attributes are, 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 have a big head start. What predictors could you look for on a resume or LinkedIn profile
1: uh, of someone who is good, who who would be good? cultivating followership, who is likely to be a student of the human experience, good with people. Yeah, I mean, we'll I, think,
2: I think the idea that you've been given responsibility in early age for running teams, you know, when you see guys, when you see folks that have just been outstanding individual contributors over and over, especially in big organizations, something to me jumps out to the fact that no one felt like you were gonna go and be great at running it. And we often see folks who are early on in their career but like have been given a seven-person team when they were at McKinsey, or they went to Eli Lilly and they gave them a 12-person team. And you're like, wow, that's weird. And there's something magnetic about those folks that is just attracting people to be like, I know you can lead people. And I know you can lead people against the variability of age, because that's always playing against you or against the variability of gender or other sort of demographic uh, hindrances. So I think those, you know, early indications that you've been good at that. And then Anecdotes about why that's worked, you know, anecdotes about why your team was exceptional or what development aspects you had with that, I think is a a big predictor for me. What sports did you play as a kid? Um, I played mostly rugby and water polo. (laughs) Rugby and water polo. Yeah. Okay. And then went on to play golf and cycling. I then went on to do golf and cycling. Um, I would admit the first two I did rather well. The next two I did rather poorly because I picked them up as an adult. It's funny.
1: I was gonna uh, just gonna sound revisionist history, but I I I was gonna ask you where you played rugby instead of asking what sports you (laughs) like. Having having learned a little bit about rugby, my younger son plays it, and I and I just love the sense of team, sacrifice, everybody has a position, right? Nobody's more important than the other guy in the scrum, et cetera, et cetera. And it strikes me that that ethos has, has somehow seeped into your entire career.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, um, I think team sports are potentially a predictor, you know, you don't want to get too detailed and some folks haven't played sports or play an individual sports and are still good at that. Um, but I do think having a team aspect to your makeup. Is very very useful in the CEO job. You can't do it alone, and you can't build a big business alone. Um, And if you can't generate the trust in other people to do it, it's going to be really really difficult, especially as you scale. So some people come to that later in life. I've seen that, Um, but it 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 definitely is you know it's definitely a big part of the job.
1: What is the reaction that founders have when you tell them? Yeah, we're good if you leave.
2: Um, <laughs> it, it varies. Like I say, sometimes it's relief. Sometimes folks have listened to, you know, I listened to Gavin on your show and, and some of your other founders who are like, look, the day you sell your business, it's not your business anymore. And like, you should really think about your exit plan. So sometimes they, they are there. Um, obviously, other times they're like, you know, I think I'm, I'm great at this and I think there's no one else who could run this business other than me. And in those instances, I go, great. Well, what we're going to do is I'm going to introduce you to one of my my executives. They're going to be your number two. They're going to be a CEO or CRO and come back in six months. And tell me whether you think you someone else can run it. So it's pretty variable. And like I say, I whenever I meet with founders, my first question is, what do you want? You know, I don't come in and tell them what we're going to go and do with the business. I'm like, be honest with me because any answer is fine. We are not a business that has to back an executive team. We're a business that can. So tell me what you really, really want. And sometimes I get the answer that, hey, I don't know. You know, I don't know how I'm going to feel when the wire hits the accounts. I don't know how I'm going to feel when I don't run the executive team meeting anymore. And then we try and help them sort that out over the next couple of months. How would your thinking of valuation change if you
1: had a founder who wanted to leave on day one versus one who wanted the uh, door number two, the COO, and to continue to run the business in perpetuity?
2: In general, it's pretty, you know, as long as I liked the CEO and we, we, were, we felt like that CEO was great, it, I'm generally relatively ambivalent, to be honest. Um, there are a few industries we've gone into. Um, not a lot because we're relatively industry agnostic with us, but we've been in a few industries where we're like, wow, the particular background of this person is very, very hard to replicate with our model. So we own a business, an international business that sells mostly into large governments and, and military and a whole bunch of things like that. And because of the particular background of the founder, it's just really, really hard uh, for us to get it. And if he was like, look, I'm I'm out of here on day two, I think not only would it have hurt valuation, I don't think we could have done the deal. So there are a few instances where that's the case. But in general, most of the stuff we buy most of the time is learnable by a professional manager.
1: Got it. And with regards to folks who choose to, who you wanna retain for whatever reason, maybe it's the situation with a government contract, et cetera. Yeah. What instrument would you use to retain them? I mean, are you using sort of a stay bonus
2: or equity role or some sort of earnout? What's what's yeah. your instrument of choice? Sometimes there is an earnout. So earnouts are very common, especially when in a high growth business where a founder is, you know, feeling like they are selling a little early or wants, you know, a little bit more juice. And so sometimes you can put folks into an earnout for a year or two. I don't personally like doing much more than two years because I think that starts getting tricky for everyone if people want to make changes. Um We sometimes have, we use an instrument called profits interest, which will give you essentially a synthetic equity stake um, in the future exit value of the business. So we bought it for 100, to use your thing earlier. I'm going to give you a 10% PI interest. And so if we sell it for 1,000, you're going to get 10% of the 900 gain. All right, so you're going to get another 90. And that's pretty cool because, you know, Folks who, folks can stay on the board, they can do lots of other things, but they can use the PI interest. And then if they become a fully fledged member of the management team, they get, obviously, they get to participate in standard, you know, profit interest upside that our management team would get. So it's very typical in sort of private equity backed deals for the management team to share in the profits of a future sale. So we will have the same profits interest instrument distributed to the CEO and the C-suite. And actually we do sort of an equity for all construct. So everyone gets some piece of the business all the way down the organization as well.
1: That's super helpful. How do you manage the egos between, I don't know a lot of Stanford grads. I know one, I know two, you (laughs) and one other person that went to Stanford. And I would say both of you are among the smartest intelligence you know, what little I know of you, Steve, is incredibly bright people. Uh, I, I, another former guest on the show, Steve Murch, uh, is would be in that same camp as well, went Stanford. So Stanford doesn't accept dullards. They want the best and the brightest, right? And so you go through a 2 MBA, and admittedly, you probably come out of a two-year MBA feeling pretty good about yourself. You got in, you got through, you're a pretty smart person. And you may have come out with a bunch of student debt or, you know, not necessarily a lot of money per se, but a lot of potential upside. And the other side of the table, this potential COO, CEO, the CEO in the equation, you've just written a founder a check for $10, 20 $30, 40000000 million, more money than they'd ever dreamt of, right. right? Probably a multiple of 100 of what the GSB grad has in their bank account. Yet the GSB grad is likely to look at that founder and say, what an idiot. I mean, this guy is running this thing on the back of a napkin. He has no processes. He's got no security in place. He could never get it past 30 employees. I mean, these egos must be very hard to manage. Am I, am I reading between the lines here? Am I, like, what you,
2: what's been your experience? Right. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting point. I mean, it's a good point. Um, I, think, I think a few things are going on. We obviously try and select... For emotional intelligence. So back to my previous point, I you know we really don't want to hire folks that are going to jack up founders and make founders not feel great. So we start there at the selection process. We take our founder reputation. If I haven't said this before, I'm going to say it again. We take it incredibly seriously. We uh, we measure founder NPS after every single deal. It's really? no- it's north of ninety percent uh, based on all our founder NPS. We tell every single founder we buy from you can call any single founder that we've ever bought a business from. Here are all their numbers. You can call them any day and ask them how this went. We believe our founder references are our greatest tool in terms of attracting good founders because, um, you know, as other folks on your podcast have mentioned, sometimes the highest price is not the best deal. And sometimes you want to really pick a partner that's going to honor your legacy and, and, you know, really build your business as opposed to just taking the biggest check size. So we lean on that very heavily. Um, We're also backing folks who know that they know nothing uh, coming straight into the business. So most of our MBAs have never run a business. They don't know anything about that. So I think there is a degree of humility to that. And if they don't have it, boy, one week in a software business as a non-technical CEO is going to teach them that. It's the whole, like, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face kind of thing. So it's very quick for them to realize, like, boy, this is a hard, hard job. And then, you know, the two last things to say, you know, our founders are great. You know, they they may not um, have everything dialed in from a business perspective, but they've built incredibly impressive businesses, better businesses than I've ever built, better businesses than any of our operators have ever built. So, like... I think it's a relatively easy task to just be like, "Damn, this is an impressive thing that you've gone and done. And I want to help and I want to deal with that. And then the last thing I would say is because of our reputation with our founders, we make explicitly clear that the happiness and the legacy and the, the job of this job is making sure that your founder has an incredible experience, whether that's staying with the business, exiting the business, Wherever the founder goes, the job of our incoming operator is to make them feel incredible about their transition process. So hey, that's your job. Now the one thing I would say about MBAs is when you give them a job to do, they're ready to be good about creating a plan and doing it. And so we're just really explicit about like, hey, if I hear from your founder that you jacked this up, you didn't make them feel good, you didn't honor their legacy, you didn't listen to them, like that's that's a bad job. So yeah, it's 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 definitely a challenge, and it's one that we we do our best to try and mitigate.
1: So helpful. How do you think about churn in a SaaS company when you're thinking about valuation? What's what's your what's your sort of eye on churn? You mentioned I, I read something in prep for this interview that there's sort of four or five stats you can look at yeah uh, in any sort of SaaS company and know whether
2: it's operating at. At peak performance. I'm assuming churn is one of those. Churn is a huge part. Um, and it's especially important for us because we're buying businesses that are sort of moving into the next evolution of of growth. So just, you know, just obviously the basic stuff. It's just mathematically very, very hard to scale a business that is below a hundred percent net revenue retention. If you start every year with less money than you than you ended it with, you're gonna have a business where you're gonna have to incrementally increase. The amount of new logo ads and new revenue you bring in on a nominal basis and that i can tell you is a difficult task so when i look at a business i start with sort of net revenue retention if you have net revenue retention over 100 you can bear some logo churn that's sort of and some logo retention that's below that so if you're getting more from your client base if clients are expanding and growing that's good um I would say at the smaller end of the scale, you can get away with sort of in the nineties and the eighties, even, you know, churn and, and, uh, net, you know, uh, gross churn and, and logo churn. But as you get bigger and bigger businesses, it really, really becomes a problem filling up the leaky bucket of a churn business. So it is, it is highly correlated with value. Um, and if you have a particular churn problem, uh, like so let's say you've got you've got retention in the 50s or 60s or whatever, it's gonna be real tough to get a premium valuation for your business. Um now, there the cool thing is there's things you can do. And there are obviously some industries, like you know, we spoke about marketing technology where, like, if you're selling to SMBs or if you're selling to consumers, hey, you know, churn's gonna be high. And then it's more about picking yourself in the industry landscape. But generally, what we do is B2B SaaS and we like to see churn. Uh, as low as humanly possible. Um, now, there are other factors. How many logos on the market? How big is the TAM? How easy and cheap is it to acquire new customers? You know, if you're acquiring customers for two bucks and you're charging them 200 a year and it's easy, well, like, okay, well, we've got a lot of runway. We can keep going. Um, but it's, it's one of the biggest indicators we look at because at the end of the day, what we want, because we want to hold for a long time, And we want to present a super valuable asset to the market in the future at some point is we want durable growing businesses. And the durability is the part that the churn comes into repeatable sales motions, repeatable customer success motions. Um, and those things are what create real long-term value. I want to just decode a
1: couple of the words you said for our listeners, Tam, total addressable market, all the people that you could possibly sell to net revenue retention means that at the end of the day, you're leaving the year with more revenue from the same customers that you had at the beginning of the year. And right. that can come from effectively upgrades. So either right. you retain 100% of your customers, which is not very likely, but that, that you more than offset the loss with upgrades and expansion revenue. So that would be what, what Steve's referred to as net revenue retention. Super helpful. One of the dirtiest little secrets of the world of M&A is retraining. And so we've heard on this show many, many, many times where an acquirer says, hey, we're gonna buy your business for a hundred. And they get the founder under LOI and they get them to sign no shop clause, go exclusive. And miraculously, 60 days later, they find something that means they're not willing to pay hundred dollars. They're actually willing to pay 90 or 80 or 70 or whatever they manufacture. Sometimes it's legit, sometimes the business fails to meet a milestone, sometimes it's illegitimate in my view, which is just boldface manipulating the situation because they know the founder has psychologically sold the business in their mind and they can take advantage of their naivete. Um, what are your thoughts
2: on retrading? Yeah, so we, we try to never retrade. We try to honor the LOIs, especially for all the reasons you've said, uh, and especially because we believe in founder reputation so much. So it's incredibly rare. In our circumstances. Um, that said, across the broader landscape, it it does happen and is real. Um, and I think is certainly something founders should look out for. Um, uh, like I say, you know, we we tend to, if the data that we get back is the data that was presented at LOI and everything tends to match up and the businesses are making their numbers, um, you know, we do the deal at the set price. So that's us. The second thing I would say is that. It is a very, very delicate time when you are under IOI, so indication of intent or LOI, and gone exclusive with someone under a letter of intent, where you have to hit your numbers. You you have to hit your numbers. And the biggest thing we see is businesses that are representing a durable growth path that then go under LOI, and then things start sliding, and then people start asking more and more questions. And we know this because we sell businesses as well. So we say to all of our CEOs, look, if you're going to put something in your, your sim, if you're going to put something um, in any sort of fireside chat, you better go and get it. So it's super scary, but it is true. And, and I always think, you know, be a little more conservative on your projections so that you can overperform your numbers. Um, and you can make sure you have a margin of safety. The thing I would say about your bad actor comment, because yeah. it's definitely true. And we see it all the time and it's annoying for us because. We'll go in an LOI, and then we'll, get, we'll lose the LOI to perhaps a more aggressive firm knowing that they're going to retrade. And, and that's frustrating for us. The, the one thing I would say, and I think about this a lot, is like, I think you could benefit a lot from testing the reputation of these firms that you go in with. You know, I, I think some of the things I see sometimes is founders don't ask questions. They don't ask for references. And that is a very common thing. You could just be like, Hey, you know, before I go into LOI, I want to speak to your last three founders you bought from. Hey, I'd love to go and just speak to some of the businesses. I'd love to go and do some research online. And like, I think a, you're going to find they're not willing to give you the phone numbers or, uh, you're going to get some, some answers that worry. And I think, you know, just asking questions, I I think founders get a little worried that if they're difficult sometimes, they're going to scare off acquirers or whatever. I think one thing to just to remember is like, these guys do this all day, every day. So ask questions, push back on things and really interrogate the, the reputation. Because like, we all know who those firms are. And I don't think it would be that hard uh, for folks to uncover who is really being, uh, who is who is acting badly. Steve, I could
1: ask you questions all day, but I, I'm going to be respectful of your time. And I know you've got a lot going on. So I'm going to... Um... I'm going to wrap there and maybe we can do a second uh, interview at some point in the future. I uh, I want to make sure people know where they can reach you. Um, what's the best place to find you, Steve? You're a LinkedIn guy? Or yeah, there? I'm a
2: LinkedIn guy. You can get me on there. Um, our website is opinesg.com where you can learn more about us. But otherwise, yeah, Steve Riden on, on LinkedIn and uh, I'm sure you've got the show notes. You could, you could post me and people can reach out anytime. I'm always happy to help and love the conversation, John. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. So we'll put Steve's uh, LinkedIn profile in the show notes of Built to Cell. Thank you very much, Steve. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, John.
0: And there you have it for today's episode between Steve and John. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then as always, be sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, you can do so by either heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and review or sharing this episode out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly enjoy today's show. A quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, you can do so over at our YouTube channel. Head over to YouTube and type in Built to Sell Radio, where there you can watch the full episodes. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com nominate, there you'll have the chance to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including more on that rule of 40, you can head over to our show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts at helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and we'll talk to you again next week.